you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Meaning that the way we make sense of the world is not through facts and figures, but through stories. We gather who we are, why we're here, and where we are going. Not from a textbook in a classroom, but through the stories we have been told. You see, even the most staunch secularist atheist believes stories about how the world works. You see, in stories are how we interpret the world and communicate ideas. Think about the meaningful ways in which we, in which we communicate incredibly complex realities, such as love, truth, justice, all through the avenue of storytelling. And this is what art fundamentally is at its core, is it not? It is people telling stories whether it's through painting or music or drama or dance or cinema or literature, all of it is storytelling. Alasdair McIntyre says this, man is essentially a storytelling animal, a teller of stories that aspire to truth. That means I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of. I want you to think about the last time you were moved. Chances are it wasn't through an infographic or some sort of statistic that was thrown your way, but through story. We are narrative creatures and stories move and speak to the soul and cause us and lead us towards action. One of my roles as a pastor in this community is to help people understand the stories they believe and to contrast those stories to the story as told by the scriptures. And this is no easy task as we live in the age of so many different narratives about the world and our place in it. And there are so many stories that carry profound weight to them that shape the trajectory of people's lives. I know people who are killing themselves, chasing after success, because the story they believe is that if you aren't successful, you don't matter. I know people who give themselves away relationship after relationship after relationship because the story they believe is to be loved, I have to earn love. I know people who have never followed a dream in their heart because the story they believe is they are fundamentally a failure. The stories we believe give shape to the futures we walk in. The stories we believe give shape to the future we walk in. And we are surrounded by competing stories. The story of materialism and consumerism, 
the story of partisan politics and media sound bites, the story of the sexual revolution and gender identity, the story of nationalism and freedom, the story of technology and social media, the story of comparison and greed. And the chaos of all of these stories is the story of Jesus, what has been come to know, be known as the gospel. Now, if we were to take a survey of the room, and I'd give each of you like a little five by seven card to write what the gospel is. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you this morning. And you would all turn them in, we get a variety of different answers at what we think the gospel means. There might be some key elements that all stayed the same, but I think every single one of you would give a different description of what you believe that the gospel is. And so there is this great confusion and misunderstanding here, even in this room, about what the gospel is. And my goal here this morning is to explain the story of Jesus, discuss our responsibility with this story, and lastly talk practically about how we have conversations around this story. You see, in launching this new series for the city, the goal of this series is to uncover the dreams that God has for Los Linus to unearth callings buried in the hearts of his people, and to behold the place we live with the eyes of the Father, that our hearts would be irreparably broken for the place we call home. And so last week, I laid before us a vision that we find in the scriptures, that we are a people in a place with a purpose. And for us to walk into that vision, we must first awaken to the message that we carry. Paul in his letter to the Romans says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now when it comes to the gospel, can we address the elephant in the room? In our teaching text, Paul clearly says that he has no shame around the story he proclaims. But if we're honest this morning, at times some of us feel ashamed of the gospel we have been given. You see, it's easy to post on social media. That part's easy, right? To retweet something or to like something or to share a video a friend sent you. But to communicate the story that we believe to the world around us sometimes seems elusive. You see, it can be incredibly inconvenient and uncomfortable understanding how to have meaningful conversations about Jesus in our cultural moment. Why? Because candidly speaking, the culture at large is not only closed off to the message of Jesus, but is hostile towards this message. And the reason we got here, I believe, is twofold. One, it's the unrelenting narrative of secularism. And two, the lack of faithful witness about the actual gospel of Jesus. Let's address the first one, the unrelenting narrative of secularism. Since the Enlightenment, we have been on this trajectory towards what sociologists call radical individualism and what has been named the age of authenticity. Charles Taylor, in reflecting on these ideas, writes this, I mean the understanding of life which emerges from the romantic expressionism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his slash her own way of realizing our humanity. And that is important to find and to live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. 
Simply put, the story secularism tells is it's all about the individual. We use phrases like, you do you, right? Live your truth. Everything is subjective to the individual, and the individual is Lord. And this ideology achieves to accomplish what they deem freedom. Freedom from anything outside the self, freedom from larger society as the whole, freedom from the previous generations and past, and freedom from any source of authority that does not lie within me. To sum up the story that is constantly coming at us is the story that we are living is all about me. Now this story plays to the part of our being called the flesh, right? Anyone who makes any sort of truth claim in our cultural moment is suspicious at the least and at the most incredibly dangerous. And, 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 and we determine what is true based off of our interpretation of the information. Don't believe me? Hop on any social media site right now and see how we are having conversations about what is true and what is not. When we are the arbiters of truth, we, in, we inevitably lead towards chaos. Each new generation thinks that the ones before them are wrong about everything and that they will be the best generation yet. Right? Every generation coming up is like, our parents got it so wrong, we're going to get it right. And the next one says the same thing, and the next one says the same thing. Not receiving the heritage of wisdom that is passed on through generations, but instead saying, they did it all wrong, we understand it. Don't believe me? Talk to a 20-year-old right now, right? And see what they believe about the world. They think they have it all figured out, right? I remember being 20 and being like, everyone doesn't get it. It's so simple. Life is so easy. And then you get to your mid-20s and, and early 30s and you realize, I think I messed up, right? I think I was really confused about how the world actually works. Any conversations around authority is viewed as archaic attempts at grasping for power. And tolerance is preached in so much as we are accepting and affirming of ideas that conform to the ideology we hold. Anything not withholding to that ideology is condemned violently. Now, it works for you now, but what happens when the script flips? This ideology that you've sold into has now turned on you. You see, we've created a culture of cynicism and if you are creating a following around cynicism, don't be surprised when the cynics turn on you. It's a matter of time. And so it is into this story that the message of Jesus sounds like nails on a chalkboard, right? Because Jesus says things like, whoever wants to find their life will lose it. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. You can see how the teachings of Jesus clearly don't fit into you do you and that kind of ideology. And the story secularism candidly plays into is what the biblical authors call the flesh. It is this part of us that is bent away from God. Let's be honest. We all love ourselves a lot, right? All of us can be pretty selfish at times. And the cultural narrative plays right into that 
framework. You're right. It's all about you, baby, right? That's kind of how we feel. Don't believe me? Be in line at a coffee shop. You're doing this thing. What's taking so long? Why is there only two people, right? Or you're at Walmart, and there's one cashier, right? And there's all this huge line. And, well, don't they know I have places to be and things to go, right? All of that is rooted in us, as if all the other people in the store don't have places to be and things to do, right? We, we experience this driving the car. Anyone driving too slow is idiotic, right? What are you doing on the road? Get out of here, whatever. Anyone driving faster than you is crazy. Look at that guy. Look at him speeding all over the place. Can you believe him, right? And it's all based on where you land because there's always someone faster than you and slower than you. But that speaks to our propensity to make everything about us. And this cultural narrative further perpetuates that. It is all about you. You are right. It is all about how you feel and what you experience and what you interpret. Not your role in the culture at large. Not your role in the community that you've been placed into. Not your role and responsibility to the people you say you love. It's all about you. And here's the reality. Sin is deceitful. Meaning, you are unaware the decisions you are making are actually, you are unaware that the decisions you're making are actually not good. And do not bring life according to Jesus because we all think we're right. Who here in the room has thought they were dead right at one time and when the facts came out, you were wrong? Every hand better be up or you're doing it right now, right? (laughs) We've all experienced something like that. You assume something, you thought something, you put two and two together and you said, that's it, I'm right, there's no other way to this. And suddenly as you're having the conversation with the other individual and they're presenting the, the actual facts, you start to realize... I'm wrong. You have two options. Respond in humility. You're right. I'm wrong. Or two, double down, dig your heels in, and let them know why you think that their conclusions are wrong. And we mostly do the latter. We mostly do the latter half of that. And so I want us this morning to consider the proverb. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, 12, it says this. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. The story secularism tells appeals to the part of us and it's met that part of us and that messaging is unrelenting. At every corner and in every story, this message is proclaimed. And people, followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus alike, are chewed up and spit out by this worldview. It is this unrelenting story narrative that secularism tells. The last half of it, as I said, was a lack of faithful witness. If one half of the coin is the story secularism tells, the other half of the coin is the story that we have been telling as Christians. Sadly, the gospel has been reduced to moralism that plays some part and something happens after we die, and it's proclaimed by people who do not resemble anything recognizable to Jesus. We, must, we first misunderstand what the gospel is And second, we lose all credibility in the public square because of the lives we live. Now, not that I think that the world needs Christians to be perfect, for they never have been, but they need Christians to be honest. And this is an area we struggle to live into. Chris Wright says this, Most people are rejecting the gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. 
If the gospel is about believing the right things and saying a prayer before you die, and it does not fundamentally change the way you live your life, then of course the gospel is trivial. Then of course it means nothing if it has no implications for how you live your life and how you treat other people. So how do we tell a better story than secularism is telling? And how do we reestablish credibility in our culture at large? We must first understand the actual story. And second, we must live out a compelling story with integrity and courage. Now, before I jump into what the gospel is, I think it's important to undo what the gospel is not and kind of work our way backwards. As I said before, each of us come in with assumptions, and I think we could pin some of these assumptions down here at the beginning and kind of contrast it with the actual gospel. And I'm borrowing some of, this, some of these ideas from John Mark from Practicing the Way. The first big idea is this, the partial story. One of the phenomena that has happened here in the West that has been popularized is a truncated version of the gospel that has been spread. And it sounds like this. You're a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died, for the, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. This is probably the most common understanding of the gospel. And there's a lot of you in this room who currently hold this view, or if I were to pass out the 5 by 7 card, this would be the answer that you give. Now, the problem with this is not that it's necessarily wrong, but it's not the full picture of what the gospel is. This is the equivalent of coming into a movie 45 minutes late and leaving early and trying to give a synopsis of the film. Imagine you strolled into Batman, watched 10 minutes of it, and left. You'd be like, there's a guy in a bat suit walking around, and that was your summation of the story of Batman, right? You would be, you'd be sadly mistaken about the whole context and the whole story and the whole narrative arc and all this character stuff that's happening. And when we proclaim that this is the gospel message, we're only giving a fraction of what the gospel actually is. It's not that it's entirely wrong, but at the least, it's incomplete. And there are other different, different iterations of this partial story. Another idea that's popularized is that of the prosecution story. Another popular version of this uses courtroom language to describe the gospel. Sounds something like this. You are guilty before God because of your sin. God will punish sin. There's nothing you can do. Good thing Jesus took your place and paid for your sin. And that is the gospel. Now again, it's not that this is entirely wrong, but again, it's only part of the story. First, it's an incomplete portrait of God. It depicts God more of like Zeus or Apollos and that they're an angry God who needs to have their wrath appeased by human sacrifice. Rather than the actual story of the scriptures, it depicts God as a loving father who does desire justice, but it's born out of his goodness and his love, not out of appeasing his wrath. When God describes himself in Exodus 34, he describes himself as loving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, abounding in faithfulness. And then he brings up that he will not let uh, evil deeds go unjudged. But the vast majority of the scriptures tell a story of a loving father. Parents in the room. Your desire is for your kids to live well. Therefore, you bring in discipline and correction, and sometimes you're firm out of love. It is not out of retaliatory anger, but of a deep desire for your kids to walk in what, that, what they have been called. 
Now, there's all sorts of problems there because we're all jacked up in a bunch of different ways. But that is a small glimpse of the heart of the Father that is described throughout the Scriptures. And all over the Scriptures, it's clear that He delights in giving mercy rather than judgment. And so the story that God is this judge waiting to bring the gavel down to send you to hell is not the complete story that's painted in the Scriptures. It's a loving Father appealing to His creation to receive the gift that He has given in His Son. It also gives an incomplete portrait of justification. For all my theology buffs out here, this framework leans very heavily upon substitutionary atonement. You want to impress somebody at lunch? There you go, right? We'll jot that down. It's essentially the idea that Jesus took our place and paid for our sins, which we say, yes and amen, that is good. But again, it's only part of the story. If we were to take this in the life of Jesus, it would be like telling the story of the cross and finishing when Jesus died. But there's a whole other half to that story, which is the resurrection. That Jesus just didn't die, but he defeated sin, death, and hell, and rose again. And the other half of this, for you theological buffs, is this idea of Christus Victor. That God has overcome his enemies through his sacrificial love. And so there's a whole other portion of this. It's an incomplete portrait of justification. And last, I believe, it leads to an incomplete portrait of discipleship. When we have this framework that there's nothing you could do, there's nothing you could do about it, that God just saved you right where you are, and you just got to receive it and pray and hope that it's the best, right? It leads to poor discipleship. It leads us to a poor framework around the idea of good works. Now, the gospel is clear that there is nothing we could do to earn God's love, but the gospel is also clear that we are called to respond with effort, practicing the way of Jesus, following the way of Jesus. That's why there's all these commands from Jesus to love your enemy, to consider the poor, right? These different things are things for us to do in response to the gospel. As famously said by Dallas Willard, that, that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And so this framework of discipleship does what I call the thunderstruck theology. And this is, God change me! And they hope that they get zapped or struck or, or get bit by a radioactive spider and somehow they will become people of love. But that's not the story of the scriptures. It is that God sanctifies us through obedience to his word. And so it leaves people feeling powerless against the world they live in and the story they live into because they're waiting for God to change them and God is inviting them to follow after him. The next iteration of this is what's been called the prosperity story, right? And a lot of this story sounds like a bad pharmaceutical drug commercial, right? This was your life before Jesus, broke and hopeless, right? Now this is your life after Jesus, rich, healthy, awesome, and good-looking, right? And you've seen the infomercial that has like the guy who talks for like 45 seconds after at an insane pace, lets you know of all the sketchy side effects of taking this drug, right? Before the person's all sad and gloomy, it's black and white, and all of a sudden they take the drug, and they're like playing with their kids and running through flowers, and like, this could be you. And this is sometimes the message we think that the gospel is. That somehow that when you decide to follow Jesus, suddenly everything in your life will become great and good. And the prosperity theology is that this sounds like this. God loves you and he's for you and he's claimed victory in your life and he wants to bless you in every way. Now there are things about that that's true. God absolutely loves you. He is for you and he has claimed the victory and he does desire to bless you. But the definition of these ideas is where Jesus' message differs from these ones. The goal of this story, the prosperity story, is that Jesus wants to make your life better. 
The goal of the gospel is Jesus wants to transform you into a person of love. There are two very different end goals. And clearly, modeled in the life of Jesus' disciples is a life of poverty, obscurity, and persecution. If God exists to bless us and make us financially wealthy and all of our things be healed, then the disciples are pretty upset about the cards that they got dealt. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, i.e., I'm homeless. Jesus said, in this world, you will face persecution, meaning your life will be really, really hard. That sounds nothing like the prosperity theology of God wants to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. The next is the political story. Another popular version of this story makes great emphasis on our social responsibility to be activists because of what Jesus has done. Sounds something like this. Jesus was a political rebel who stood against evil governments and systems. He stands opposed against those who mean to abuse power, and he wants to establish his kingdom on earth. Again, good things here. Jesus does, does subvert kingdoms and power. Jesus does stand for those who are oppressed. But this idea of kingdom has been hijacked and made to what we want it to be based on our political preference. Now, wherever you plot yourself on the political spectrum here, this idea works for you, right? If you find yourself more conservative, the call of Jesus is to take out the crazy libs, right? And if you're liberal, right, it calls out to take out the crazy Republicans or conservatives, right? And both of them are kind of upended at one another. Now, the only problem with this is a few things. One, Jesus is far too conservative for liberals and way too liberal for conservatives, Right? For the liberals, Jesus' ideas about sexual ethics are probably the most conservative you'll ever find, being a celibate Jewish rabbi. And also, Jesus' teaching about compassion for the poor and the immigrant, right, rubs some people the wrong way whose end goal is to make money for themselves. Jesus was also unconcerned with the raging political debates of his age. The prime example of this is people come and say, Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar? This is the way of them getting Jesus really good. Because if he says yes, then he's for the oppressor. He's for the people who are, are persecuting these people. And if he says no, he's a rebel against the system. He's a zealot. He's leading this rebellion, etc. And Jesus' Jedi response to this is give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. Mic drop. Completely unconcerned in dealing with the political agendas of his contemporaries of the day. Jesus is intentionally inconspicuous about his political agenda because his kingdom is entirely a different one. Which brings me to the last idea. It's the kingdom of God is not America or any other government. It's a different kingdom entirely. Jesus' goal isn't to make America prosper. Jesus' goal is to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And all of these kingdoms are fundamentally opposed to his. And so these are some different iterations of this gospel story. And so what is the Jesus story? What is the gospel? Here are a few definitions that I love. John Tyson and Susie Silk say this. <clears throat> the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin the Satan, death and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish his kingdom through his people and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our great joy. Rich Biotis says this, 
The gospel is the good news that, king, that God's kingdom has come near through Jesus and through his life. Death and resurrection and enthronement, the powers of Satan, sin, death, and death no longer have the last word. My favorite of these is Jesus' definition. Mark 1, Jesus is this, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So if the partial story we believe is just about being a sinner who gets saved and then waits for Jesus to come back again, what's the whole story? The story begins in creation. That you were created in the image of God, made for life with God, and were designed with purpose. We must begin in this place. We must begin with the Imago Dei, image of God, because that's where the story of the scriptures begin. Then the scriptures lead us towards the fall. And this is where sin enters the picture. Humanity chooses to define good and evil for themselves in response to the temptation of the serpent. And because of that decision, and this decision that each of us make, we do the same thing. We bring death and decay into God's good world. Then the story takes us to redemption. Out of God's great love, we are rescued from sin, the devil, death, and hell, and are made new by the work of Jesus. We are then recommissioned to partner with God and the redemption of creation through establishing his kingdom through the power of the Spirit. And last is the culmination, the future restoration, where we look forward to the day where all of creation is fully restored and the kingdom of God is on, heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, where God makes all things new. Heaven comes down to earth. The biblical authors look forward to this day calling it Zion. It is the whole story. And when Jesus says the time has come, he says he is in fulfillment of this very story. The next thing he says is the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we don't really use language of kingdom anymore. You don't refer to the property in which you live as your kingdom, right? You don't invite a friend over, welcome to my kingdom. You know, please have a seat, whatever it is. But kingdom is this idea of where, where an individual rules and reigns. So the kingdom of God is the place in which God rules and reigns. Now there's three important things we must understand about this kingdom. First, it is now and not yet. Meaning this, there are realities of the kingdom that we enjoy right now. God extends to us his love, his peace, his forgiveness, his kindness, his joy, the, the wonder of, of the power of the spirit all placed inside of us. And we receive this as the first fruits of the kingdom of come. So it's here, but it's here in part. And it's also on the way, right? And there are realities of the kingdom that will be fully realized at his return. We still live in a broken and fallen world. And so when things don't go according to God's will, it is this expectation and longing for us looking towards the day he returns and establishes his reign here on earth as it is in heaven in its entirety. The second idea about the kingdom is this. The kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. It is what uh, theologians refer to as the upside-down kingdom, where the last will be first, where we love our enemies, where we, where we uh, esteem the poor, where we continually subvert power structures on its head. And when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, he inaugurates it through suffering love. And lastly, that the kingdom advances through love. Jesus overcomes evil and darkness, not with sword or force, but through sacrificial love, laying down his life for his enemies. That is how he overcomes them. The next idea is this, of good news. The Greek word here is euangelion. You meaning good, and angelion meaning announcement or news. 
the word was used for political announcements. So if you were living in Rome and Rome just conquered another place, there would be a herald or an announcer who would come into your city and proclaim the Evangelion, the good news. Rome is just overtaken wherever. And that would be the political message being given. It's, it's the message is particularly about a king and a kingdom. It would make much of Caesar Augustus or whoever was in power and the Pax Romana that they are continuing to spread across Rome. Christians hijacked that word and began to use it for Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus used that, and the, and the scripture authors used that as a way to describe the kingdom that is coming with them. It is good news, euangelion. So what is this good news? It is the good news, the announcement that the kingdom of God has come near. Now in the scriptures, the kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation are often used for one another. And so the kingdom of God is not this disembodied spirit worship service that we may have in our mind, i.e. heaven. The kingdom of God is where God has his effective rule and reign. And eternal life and salvation, it really means, really speaks to us having life and life to the full with God, right? Now, our, our framework of these ideas previously, eternal life, when we think of that, what do you think of? You probably think of like life going on forever, like eternal, forever, never ending. And that's a part of it, but that's not what the scripture authors had in mind. And what happens when you think of the idea of salvation? A lot of us think meeting the minimum requirements to get into heaven, right? We are technically saved, right? If someone were to ask you, are you saved? The assumption behind that question is like, did you pray a prayer? Did you do a thing? Did you walk up to the front? Like, did you make this decision at some point in your life and, and say that you believe these things? And that's the minimum requirements for entering heaven. The only problem with those definitions is the scriptures. Um, for Jesus and the New Testament authors, this is not what they meant. They are different ways of describing the same thing. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all through their gospels, use the dominating language of the kingdom of God. John uses the dominating language of eternal life. And Paul, in his writings, that the dominant metaphor there is salvation. How do we know this? Jesus explicitly defines what eternal life is in the gospel of John. John 17, Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice, Jesus doesn't describe eternal life as a perpetual worship service living on forever past eternity, but it is life knowing God. This is the framework that Jesus has for eternal life. I love what Brenda Collins says. She says this, eternal life is primarily qualitative rather than quantitative. Eternal life describes the kind of life one has in Christ. And so this good news is that God has reconciled us to himself. That God has overcome his enemies and God has freed us from death and has given us his life. On this meditation, St. Augustine says this, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him is the greatest adventure. To find him is the greatest human achievement. Now that we know what the story is, brothers and sisters, what do we do with it? Paul says this, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Our response to this glorious message, brothers and sisters, 
is to set it free upon the world in which we live. Let's have an honest conversation. The secularist story is not working. It is effective. It is popular. But fundamentally, at the hearts of people, it's not working. I mean, think about it. In our time since the Enlightenment, are we any more happier now or more fulfilled or have more peace or longing? Or did it solve the world's issues in terms of war and things of that nature? Did people stop being selfish and whatever? But the progressive narrative tells us, the secularist progressive narrative tells us that if we just continue on into progress, it'll get better. But the further we go in, the seems with the less satisfied we become. I mean, think about the kind of schisms that we made in technology. Sure, there's things that are great, i.e. DoorDash and FaceTime and some really cool stuff like that. But the things that we're not talking about is the depression and anxiety that's coming from fundamentally being addicted to these things and the way that comparison works in the mind of people and how uh, parents or, or kids are growing up with parents who are addicted to their smartphones and aren't receiving love and attention and the, the, the time that they deserve. Like, we're not talking about the totality of where this progress ultimately leads. And so... The secular story isn't working. Don't believe me. Talk to people you know. I mean, do they have any more joy, any more peace? Are they fully satisfied in the lives they've been given? Or is there still this longing within them for something more? And so our response is to take this story to a world who's dying for it and doesn't even know it. A world who is hungry and thirsty for something more. And we have the thing that can give them fulfillment. It is to point them to Jesus and his story. Peter says this in 1 Peter, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give you, give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Peter tells us here first to be prepared. Now what we're not going to do today is hand out a little flyer that tells you the exact things to tell your friend, Right? If you were to die today, where would you go? You know, something like something of that nature. God says clearly in his word that you, you know, whatever. That's not an effective means for evangelism. So how is it that we be prepared? First, we must learn how to have conversations around Jesus. And how we communicate is just as important as what we communicate. I have a little uh, thing here for you. Awesome. This is called the Sensitivity and Boldness Scale. I'm taking this from a missional life course by uh, Church of the City of New York. So here's the essential structure. On one axis, you have high sensitivity and low sensitivity. This is uh, our sensitivity and awareness to the culture, to the conversations we're having, the people that we're with. And on the other axis is low boldness and high boldness. So like timidity on one area and able to kind of speak freely on the other. So in this uh, bottom left-hand corner, we have basically us being deemed as irrelevant. We have low boldness. We're not having any conversations of any sort with anybody, and we have low sensitivity. We're not aware of like, what's happening in our workplace and with our family and with our friends, etc. So we're just kind of irrelevant in the greater scheme of uh, the conversation around faith. On the bottom right-hand side is we have low sensitivity, high boldness, i.e. get your megaphone out, stand on your soapbox, and start shouting right? These are the people we know who are proclaiming the message with great boldness, but have no sensitivity. What's that fruit look like? It's not very good. I don't know of anybody who has slammed their brakes in their car, pulled into the Burger King parking lot, kicked open their door, fell on their face, and said, Jesus is Lord, because the guy was shouting at them as they were waiting at the red light. If you know somebody, please let me know, but I do not think that this has ever been an effective means of evangelism. The other quadrant is that which is comfort, no, 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 back, 
the, the quadrant is that which is compromised. So low boldness, but high sensitivity. So in your workplace, you're loving, you're kind, you're thoughtful, you're like you're, you're, you, you know, you put stuff together for people and things of that nature. Like you, you care for your neighbor so much that you like cut their lawn and hope that they will somehow realize because I cut the blades of grass in this way, they will realize Jesus is Lord, right? That's kind of the framework and mentality. The only problem with that is Jesus is never brought up. There's no conversations about it. How then will they know? Are you going to carve his face into the, into the grass for them that they may see that he is Lord? Absolutely not. And so there's a, there's a timidity, there's a lack of boldness there, but there's a high sensitivity. And it ultimately leads us to being compromised that we're not able to share the message well. And the last one, which is the one that's depicted in the scriptures, is for us to be an ambassador. An ambassador is a representative of another kingdom, right? So if you were an ambassador of the United States in Paraguay, you would be representing the United States in another place. The message that we've been given in the scriptures is that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are representatives of the place where God rules and reigns. So what a great responsibility we have to represent him well. We must A, know how to communicate the things that we believe, the culture that we have, the king that we serve, but also learn how to live well in a culture and society that we are foreign to. Both need to coexist together. And so there's a social awareness that we are tactful and mindful about how we have conversations. And there's also a boldness. We are willing to have those conversations. And so this is the scale that we have. And so in terms of pragmatics, practical things, one of the best things you can do is build relationships with people. Now, this isn't mandatory for the gospel, but it is always incredibly effective and helpful in telling the message of Jesus. There's the famous saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you what? Care. It's true. If you've never talked to Karen in accounting, and then you catch her at the coffee line, you're like, hey, Karen, I want to talk to you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She's like, ooh, doo-doo, you know, I'm out of here, right? There's no way. But if you know her and you build relationship with her and you have conversations with her and you continue to build upon that relationship, then that kind of stuff will come up organically and naturally. And it won't feel forced, but it'll be born out of agape love for another person that then it creates an avenue and ability to speak into that. And when people are in moments of crisis or deep pain, whether at large existential crisis like a pandemic or financial insecurity or whatever, or personal crisis, as in a family member specifically in their family is sick or they're going through something, it creates an opportunity for us to step in there with the message of Jesus. And so relationships matter. This is why we say church is always best done around a table, not a stage. Like if your whole hope for like someone in your family coming to know Jesus is dragging them here to let me preach to them, that's a poor method. An even better one is to love them well and to share the story of Jesus with them through the context of relationship. Remember, the goal for us is not just to get people to say a prayer, raise their hand, come to the front. The goal for us is to make disciples. In a moment's time, it can be easy to like make things emotional, turn down the lights, Jake's singing like an angel, right? And we make this beautiful moment where it's like, come and say yes to Jesus. And I preach this compelling speech and somebody comes forward and says yes. It's a whole other thing for that person to leave here and genuinely follow Jesus. Now, uh, just proclaiming the message and hoping for a response is, is one way to do it, and it's not completely ineffective. There are many people who have come to know the Lord that way, but the far more effective means is personal discipleship through the people of God being empowered to do the work of the ministry. And so 
This is why our framework here at Zion isn't to do necessarily altar calls or things of that nature, but is to equip our people to learn to have, how to have conversations about their faith. But how do we gauge where people are at and what that requires from us to be able to meet them where they're at? This has been famously called the gray matrix. Matrix, boom, cool. So uh, access one is awareness and no knowledge. Access two is closed and open. So um, awareness of things of God as, as the high thing, and then no knowledge as they have no understanding or comprehension or framework for what the Bible teaches, who Jesus is, etc. And the other access is closed, their receptivity to this message, closed and then open. So on the bottom left-hand side, we have closed. They're closed and no knowledge. Like this person, no way, Jose, not hearing anything you have to say. And so for this people, they have both low awareness of the gospel and are totally closed to it. The opportunity here is a basic introduction on the credibility of your faith claims within the context of close relationship. There is much work, but, this, but, this, but also much opportunity in this quadrant because the disillusionment with Jesus has never had a chance to set in. So if they're, they're, if they're just closed and low aware, we have this opportunity to bring credibility to our faith's claims. Uh, the next one we'll do is uh, bottom right-hand quadrant, which is curious um, and, no, uh, and uh, low knowledge. So these people are open to spirituality, faith, the transcendent, or more, but have little act- active or meaningful knowledge about Jesus and the gospel. The opportunity here is to show them the content of the gospel and help them understand and encounter Jesus and his message. High awareness and high openness these are people who know Jesus. They are open to grow. The opportunity is to help them strengthen their commitment to Christ and to engage in more, holistic, more holistically in prayer and discipleship. Um, and lastly is a cynic who is high in awareness and low in openness. These people are closed off but have a high prior knowledge of Jesus and the gospel. This is much of post-Christianity as people have left the church and built frameworks against it. For them, you have to pull out all the stops and make the Jesus way of life compelling and disorientating. For this person to consider faith, they need to encounter surprising generosity, breathtaking kindness, sacrificial love, and category-breaking freedom. And so in each of these quadrants, right, we have people who are Christians. So our goal for Christians in conversation is to continue to push them towards Jesus. For those who are curious, it's for us to begin to develop conversations around the longings that they have and how Jesus fulfills those longings. For someone who's, who's closed off completely, it is to live a compelling life and to bring credibility to our faith claims. And lastly, and this is primarily most people here in America, there's a high awareness of who Jesus is and what he brings, but there's a low openness. They're very cynical towards the, ways of, the way of Jesus. And for us the responsibility then is for us to live such compelling lives it begs the question what makes them different and then issuing in a conversation after that in closing two ideas peter says that we must do this with gentleness and respect and i cannot emphasize this enough when we share the story of jesus we must first take the posture of being gentle Notice in the Gospels, Jesus is never trying to shove his message down anyone's throat. People follow him him because they are compelled by who he is, what he is doing, and the message he proclaims. He never had to force an audience to come hear him. He didn't like send out his disciples and like try to conjure people up to gather into the room. You know, hey, tell them we're giving out free pizza and they could all come and then boom, gotcha, we're gonna give you the message. No, Jesus was modeling a different life and people were drawn to him. He is a gentle savior. 
the scriptures tell us that it is God's kindness that brings us to repentance. And so as followers of Jesus, the posture we must maintain is that of gentleness. That we are not rough and forceful, but we are kind and gentle and considerate to the people in our lives. And the next thing is to be respectful. Can I be real honest? Christians tend to be the most arrogant people out there. It's true, and it's heartbreaking, and it grieves the heart of God. That we tell people they're idiots for believing what they believe, or they're stupid or naive, or this, that, or whatever, that just does great harm and destroys any witness. You never see this model anywhere in the scriptures, yet this is the model that we take. The avenue into engaging in meaningful conversation is always the avenue of respect. Respecting somebody else, respecting their story, respecting what they believe, respecting where they come from. And it is only when they feel heard that they're willing to hear you out. And so at Zion, we want to model gentleness and respect. But this all begs the question, how do I tell them? What do I say? Okay, there's this person who's open. They come and tell me, tell me about this person, Jesus. What do I do? Is there a flashcard? Is there a video I can show them? Is there something they could do? And one of my favorite stories ever is John 9. There's a man, and I'll invite the worship team up. There's a man born blind. Jesus sees this man and he heals him. And he heals him in a very peculiar way, in a very Jesus way. He spits into the ground, creates mud, and puts it on his eyes. And he's healed. Strange, I know, right? This is the story of what happened. So this man is healed. He can see. Pharisees hear about the story and they bring this dude in to interrogate him. Picture like the lampshade standing there. Where were you the night of the 14th? Or, you know, because they're interrogating him. Tell us about this man who healed you. And he's like, dude, no idea. We heard this man is a sinner. Is he a sinner? He's like, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. Well, tell us everything you know. He's like, how many times do I need to tell you this story? He's like, he says, he says a very sarcastic comment. He's like, it's like you want to be one of his followers. And that infuriated the Pharisees. And so they're frustrated with him. And they're just, tell us. And he's like, look, I was blind and now I see. That's the story. Whether he's a sinner, whether he's a God, whether he's this, whether he's that, I have no idea. But let me tell you what I do know. I was blind, now I see. Is this meeting over, you know? And this is the method, and this is where I just want to encourage you to start. Just tell the story. Your story. You don't have to have, if there's a good God, why is there evil in the world? Or explain the creation of the universe? Or what about evolutionary theory? You don't have to know the answers to any of those things. All you have to be able to do is tell the story that God is writing with your life. I was blind, now I see. Whether it was six literal days or over millennia or this or that or whatever, I don't know. But here's what I do know. There's this man, Jesus. And he promised me life and life to the full. And I've met him. And he met me. And he's forgiven me of all of my sins. And he's given me a future and a hope. He's given me purpose. He's given me life and life to the full. And I can't explain it all. I can't tell you the Greek and the Hebrew, but I can tell you one thing. He's changed my life. And if you give him a chance, he could change yours too. You don't have to be the most eloquent speaker. You don't have to have it all together. You just got to simply tell the story.
And here's the wonderful about, thing about Jesus. He's good at defending himself. He's good at disarming cynics. He's good at silencing doubt. He's good at showing up in a moment and in a room and being who he is, the savior of the world. I know there's great fear around telling this story. If we're honest, it's fear of man. What will they think of me? You know, I just got, they finally got them to talk to me, much less now they're going to think I'm a weirdo, this, that, or whatever. Do we really believe the message we claim to carry? Has Jesus really changed your life? If the answer to those is yes, then we have no other response or obligation than to simply just tell the story. I know that it's not kosher. I know that it's not received that culture by, by the culture at large, but you know who it is received by? The person looking for hope. The family who's brokenhearted. The person who feels like they've failed too much in life to ever be forgiven. To them, that story is the power of God that generates new life. Will you stand with me? Jesus, when we become a people who steward the message we carry well, who learn how to have meaningful conversations, who learn how to uh, describe and talk about the message that we find in the scriptures and to make much of you. As we enter now into a time of response, would you fill the room with your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.